This E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Special Edition Podcast is presented by DKB Med Radio. Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Special Edition Podcast. We're here to focus on the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on people with cystic fibrosis, and in particular, what CF caregivers need to know to make the most appropriate treatment decisions for their patients. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. And I'm here today with Dr. Lisa Seaman, Professor of Pediatrics at Columbia University Medical Center and a hospital epidemiologist at New York Presbyterian Hospital. For our guest disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, ecfreview.org, and click the COVID-19 Special Edition link. Dr. Seaman, thank you for joining us. My pleasure to be here today. Our overall learning objective is to evaluate the emerging data to make treatment decisions for patients with CF during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, So if you would, please, doctor, start us out from an epidemiological perspective with some of the key COVID-19 facts. The burden of the COVID-19 pandemic is unprecedented in the modern era. In the U.S. alone, over 12 million people have tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 and over 260,000 Americans have died. While most people with SARS-CoV-2 infection have mild to moderate flu-like illness or even remain asymptomatic, about 20% develop serious illness and may require hospitalization. Fortunately, children represent a minority of cases, about 2 to 5% of overall cases, and have been relatively protected from severe illness. Transmission of the virus. What have the data shown? Most commonly, SARS-CoV-2 spreads from person to person by respiratory droplets that can be made when a person coughs, sneezes, sings, or even during normal talking. That's why wearing face masks or face covering is the single most important prevention strategy to protect people. Masks and face covering protect others and the person wearing the mask or face covering from getting COVID. Airborne transmission of SARS-CoV-2, while less common, also occurs. That's why social distancing and avoiding large groups of people are so important at preventing transmission of this virus. If a person touches their eyes, nose, or mouth after touching a surface contaminated with SARS-CoV-2, they can also become infected. That's why frequent hand hygiene is so important. It's important to understand that transmission can also occur from people with and without symptoms. So everyone must wear masks, social distance, and do frequent hand hygiene because we really don't know who is infected. Bob, it's very important for the audience to understand that the things we are discussing, wearing masks or face covering, social distancing, avoiding gathering, and frequent hand hygiene work to protect people and save lives. In many parts of the U.S., our healthcare system is overwhelmed with cases, so together we must do everything we can to prevent transmission of this virus. Those preventative measures, they're they're important, of course, but what about testing? Testing is important for two reasons. If someone has symptoms of COVID, they should get tested to confirm that their symptoms are from COVID. If their test is positive, their contacts can be traced and tested to reduce the spread of the virus. If someone does have a positive test for COVID, even if they don't have symptoms or feel 
much, much better, they still need to stay home for at least 10 days and isolate from others in their homes as much as possible. People can spread the virus for over a week after their test is positive. Finally, if someone is exposed to another person with COVID, both person needs to quarantine at home for 14 days after their exposure. That is the length of time it can take for the exposed person to develop symptoms and become infectious. As I mentioned before, people can spread the virus even when they don't have any symptoms. I recognize that isolation, contact tracing, and quarantine can be truly difficult for people, but these steps are necessary to protect people and save lives. How does this virus actually cause illness? What's the research shown? The virus that causes COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, makes people sick as the virus infects various organs and as the body tries to contain the virus by an inflammatory response. Sometimes the inflammatory response may be excessive, the so-called cytokine storm. This occurs, organs can be damaged, most notably the lung, and lead to death. Treatments for COVID-19 currently focus on both the virus and on the excessive inflammatory response. Remdesivir attacks the virus and steroids dampen the excessive inflammation. Both are currently available to patients. With that as background, uh, I'd like to focus now very specifically on the effects of COVID-19 on people with cystic fibrosis. Is there evidence, doctor, and what does it say? Bob, there aren't a lot of data yet about the impact of COVID-19 on people with CF. In fact, CDC states that adults with CF might be at increased risk for severe COVID-19. We now know that adults of any age with certain comorbid conditions, such as pulmonary disease, being immunocompromised from solid organ transplant, smoking, or type 2 diabetes are at increased risk of severe COVID-19. These conditions may also be present in people with CF. So this is why the CF community is obviously worried about the impact of COVID-19 on people with CF. So far, one published case series describes 40 people with CF from eight countries infected with SARS-CoV-2. It is important to recognize that this was a very diverse group of patients, so it is difficult to make firm statements about the impact of COVID-19 in people with CF. For example, in this small series, 38% had CF-related diabetes, 11 had lung transplants, one person was pregnant, and only one was a child. Most of these patients had symptoms, 10% required ICU care, and no deaths occur. In this small study, the clinical course of people with CF appeared to be similar to that of the general population with COVID-19, and others have made similar observations in single-center studies. The 2020 NACFC, the North American Cystic Fibrosis Conference, it was held virtually last October, and I'm sure the effects of the pandemic were one of the hot topics. Are there any unpublished or not yet published presentations that clinicians should be aware of? Yes, Bob. Around the world, CF registries are collecting information about COVID cases in people with CF, including information about the severity of infection and both short and long-term outcomes. As you noted, this information has not yet been published, but I'd like to share some notable findings presented at NACFC. 
People with CF who have undergone lung or liver transplantation appear to be at increased risk of hospitalization and ICU care when they become infected with SARS-CoV-2. Notably, hospitalizations have decreased in children with CF younger than 12 years of age. Investigators think that children with CF may be having less exposure to respiratory viruses as they are practicing the strategies we discussed earlier to prevent SARS-CoV-2 infections, wearing masks, social distancing, avoiding gatherings, and frequent hand hygiene. These strategies may reduce other respiratory viral infections as well. Throughout the world, CF care networks continue to provide people with CF with evidence-based care both in person and through telehealth. However, in a published Swiss survey of adults with CF, many respondents reported less physical activity. This highlights the need to strategize with people with CF how to find opportunities for exercise during the pandemic. The audience is no doubt aware that the COVID-19 pandemic is causing unprecedented rates of anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts in people throughout the world. In a published study, Belgium investigators described the emotional impact of the pandemic among people with CF and their parents, which understandably included symptoms of depression and anxiety. At the NACFC, it was emphasized that care centers must ensure access to mental health services for people with CF and their families, as well as their CF care teams, who also may be experiencing the emotional toll of the pandemic. I'd like us to focus now on the concept that people with cystic fibrosis might somehow be protected from the worst of COVID. Talk to us about that, if you would, please, doctor. Could it be true, and what factors might be responsible? There's really some very interesting data to address your question. Some data suggests that people with CF may have less risk of being infected with SARS-CoV-2 and less risk of severe disease. It is very interesting to consider why this may be so. First, people with CF and their families have practiced infection prevention and control for many years. These strategies include wearing masks and hand hygiene. Thus, people with CF no doubt understood early in the pandemic that these same strategies could prevent SARS-CoV-2 transmission. In fact, a published study from Spain reported that many people with CF implemented home isolation and some children with CF stopped attending school or daycare before the official lockdown. Second, the relatively young age of people with CF may also play a protective role. As I mentioned earlier, children are fortunately relatively protected from severe COVID. Third, azithromycin, which many people with CF are prescribed to reduce inflammation in CF, may have both anti-inflammatory and antiviral benefits for SARS-CoV-2. And fourth, Stanton and colleagues have published an excellent paper in the Blue Journal describing other reasons why people with CF appear to be protected from severe COVID-19. For example, they speculate that CFTR mutations may reduce SARS-CoV-2 entry into lung cells or reduce SARS-CoV-2 replication. Both of these beneficial effects could reduce the organ damage caused by the virus. Dr. Saman, thank you for bringing us this snapshot of the currently known evidence about the effects of COVID-19 on the cystic fibrosis population. As part of this special edition, 
You also spoke directly with frontline clinicians about what they've been experiencing as they navigate this disrupted healthcare system. Uh, tell us, if you would, please, who you spoke with and why you chose them. Sure, Bob. I spoke with Dr. John LaPuma from the University of Michigan Medical School about maintaining CF infection prevention and control in the face of the pandemic. I asked John to contribute to this project due to his expertise as a pediatric infectious disease physician caring for children with CF and his perspective as co-author of the most recent infection prevention and control guidelines for CF. John, I'd like to start by asking you if you think that the CF community's long-standing prioritization of infection prevention and control has assisted them in their response to the COVID-19 pandemic. I think it absolutely has, and I think it has in a number of ways. I think that the CF community in general is more knowledgeable about microbiology. They know what viruses are. They know what bacteria are. And they understand, in general, the principles of infection prevention and control. I've been impressed, really, with how little the communities out there, apart from CF, seem to really not appreciate some of these basic principles about how bacteria may be spread, about the proper use of measures like masks and proper hygiene in preventing infection. And I think these are principles that the CF community has been aware of for a very long time. So I think that familiarity, I think that comfort level with universal precautions and how these apply to everyone are things that have really helped the CF community come into the pandemic with a knowledge base and an understanding that has served the community very well. It's really interesting, John, to think back to when we worked together on the 2013 Infection Prevention and Control Guidelines and how many of the recommendations there, like the six-foot rule and mask wearing, are really applicable for the COVID-19 pandemic. Right. I think that those ideas, those principles that have been part and parcel of what people with CF have learned over the past really now couple decades have served them well. And that community of people with CF have been ahead of this very steep learning curve that lots of other people are now experiencing in terms of trying to understand some of these basic principles of how we prevent spread of infectious diseases. John, I'd like to ask you if you have any advice or additional strategies for how people with CF and their families can continue to improve infection prevention and control for themselves and for others that they interact with? I think a really important thing to keep in mind is to use trusted sources of information. A lot that's online now and a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of misinformation, frankly, coming from all sorts of sources. And I think it's very easy to be distracted or to rely on information that suits one agenda or another. And so I think people really need to rely on their CF care teams to get good information. The CF care teams are really tied in very closely, of course, with the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. And the foundation has lots of experts and lots of knowledge. I think people really need to be aware of where their information is coming from and make sure it's coming from a trusted source like their CF care team. Another thing to keep in mind is to maintain a group of close contacts, of trusted contacts. These, of course, include family members, but also other people in your pod or your bubble, people that you can trust. 
And it's important to have really honest dialogue about behaviors when people are out of the house or out in social settings. We really need to understand that people in our bubble are being conscientious and wearing masks and doing all the right things. And sometimes this really involves what might be somewhat awkward conversations, but they have to be honest conversations about, are you doing all the right things? Can I trust you as a member of my bubble so that we're all staying safe? I really like that. I think that's fantastic advice. And, you know, we're heading into winter and we're all concerned as the weather gets colder. And again, I know that you have a family and you're dealing with this in your own life. Do you think you could share some further advice for how to, and I'm using this pun intentionally, weather the future? Well, we are heading into a time when we're going to be spending a lot more time inside. And again, I think that that is a time to really not let your guard down, to maintain the connections that you can maintain using social media, using other ways of communicating. I think this is another area where the CF community has been somewhat maybe ahead of the curve in keeping these connections with each other virtually. I think we can continue to be role models for the rest of the community. And, you know, the other thing I would say in these sort of darker months is don't forget about your routine CF care. Don't let COVID sort of get you off track. It's important to do all the things that you do to take care of yourself. Particularly important this time of year, we always think about influenza vaccine around this time of year. So it's extremely important to get that done this year, maybe more so than other years. And moving forward, when a COVID vaccine is available, of course, that's going to become very important as well. So that's another example where trusted sources of information, I think, are going to be very important. Those were just wonderful points. And I'd like to really re-echo the influenza vaccine. We know that people that are high risk for severe influenza are at high risk for severe COVID. So super important this year, as you said. John, thank you so much for joining me today. I also spoke with Dr. Marianne Moorbach from UNC Hospital's Children's Specialty Clinic about overcoming shutdown challenges in CF centers. As the pandemic progressed, Marianne shared with me her deep concerns about providing care to her patients and the innovative ways that her center and centers around the world adapted to new care practices imposed by the pandemic. Marianne, welcome to the program. I'd like you to reflect on your experiences at Chapel Hill as in-person CF clinics shut down this spring. Yes, thank you, Lisa. So the initial aspect was really how do we stay in touch with patients? How do we make sure they don't fall through the cracks? And it's, of course, the sickest ones that we needed to worry about. Their appointments suddenly got canceled and our phone trees probably weren't manned immediately. So that was really a challenge initially, but we have a wonderful pre-existing teamwork of nurses, respiratory therapists, social workers, nutritionists, and everybody just stepped up and said, how can we remedy this situation? How can we do this? Marianne, I'm sure there was a huge learning curve for the entire team, but I know you also do research, and I've had the great fortune of being able to be one of your collaborators. Can you share how all of the initial shutdown impacted your research program? Yes, research was impacted at all levels. We had to figure out what to do with clinical interventional studies, as well as those that were more observational in nature. And these were studies with MRSA, where patients were already enrolled. 
There is also an interesting big multi-center study that we worked with a total of 19 centers, so 10 centers, and each one of them had pediatric and adult centers involved. We contacted them and we developed a survey that related to the shutdown of the clinics due to COVID-19. We asked them how did it affect their clinic staff, how did it affect patient care, what alternative options did they develop, and how did this all work for them. So, Marian, will you share some of the highlights from the survey that you found? Yes, certainly. I'll be happy to. So we found that within two weeks in March, all the clinics shut down. So it was nationwide, pretty much the same schedule. All the clinics ramped up telehealth within somewhere of five days to two weeks. And they all also reported that you had to be flexible and just expect the next change to happen. These challenges that I saw and that are ongoing in many places is that there aren't very good means to get the regular surveillance that we do for our patients, and that includes getting cultures to make sure they don't have a new organism that requires treatment, and to get regular spirometry to see are they losing any spirometry values. That is something that we heard even in our latest round of reports of that survey, that certain clinics still have about 50% of patients who hadn't been seen in person since March. So that, to me, is somewhat concerning. Sure. And when was that survey administered? So we sent the first round in April and the latest one last week for a total of three surveys. So we are capturing also as the clinics open. So some patients are still not being seen. That's correct. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about was your perspective on the pluses and minuses of telehealth. Certainly, telehealth has proven invaluable. As you mentioned, patients really couldn't be seen in person. But I'm imagining that there are some challenges with telehealth as well. Right. That is, I think, something we're still learning about, all the benefits and the disadvantages. An additional benefit to just being seen at all versus not at all is that for some families, the travel to the CF center was always a huge hurdle to get here, especially in states like North Carolina that are quite spread out. Patients often have to travel three hours one direction just to come to the clinic. That is something that I think the patients appreciate as well. I do have concerns and ongoing challenges is to get the whole team involved, which we are solving increasingly well with combined visits, tuning in the other members of the CF team. But there are certain aspects such as how does a newly diagnosed child learn how to do chest PT or how the parents learn it in this case? How do they get instructed how to clean an nebulizer? And my other concern is the missed opportunity of getting cultures on the regular schedule. The foundation and other countries have shown that having quarterly cultures is beneficial, and now we are falling behind. And we will only learn next year on what the consequences of this are. And that makes sense to me that, you know, we're really not going to understand all the implications of this for a while. I think the registry that the CF Foundation maintains will be very, very instructive in understanding the impact of this. Do you want to speculate? Do you think that telehealth is going to be part of CF care in the future because there are some potential benefits? 
I think it will be part of future care. And I'm personally quite interested in this topic as well to see how can we use all the beneficial aspects and on the other hand, develop those challenges that we have. How do we overcome those with remote culture techniques that we have actually been quite successful with at UNC? Wonderful. Thank you. So I had another question. You mentioned some of the concerns that you have, but Could you reflect on some other things that you're really worrying about for both your patients with CF as well as their families? Right. As I'm seeing more patients in person again, I'm realizing the impact, how it affects different people differently, of course. And there are some examples where patients are so afraid to leave the house that they're just not doing any exercise, any activity. And that leads to depression that affects the outcome and the care of both the parent as well as the child. And I have had personal experiences where I'm hoping that after they came to clinic, we could help them overcome those. I'm sure other places have had those same experiences. It's really difficult to reflect on this for everyone, right, as these shutdowns and loss of economic opportunities and school closures. It's really an incredible time that we're living through. I think that you've really highlighted nicely some of the truly positive adaptations that CF centers have had to make during the pandemic, some of which may stay with us. Can you give us some of your final thoughts about these positive adaptations and and how they actually may improve CF care moving forward? Yes. So what's the silver lining here, right? I think we definitely have learned how strong CF teams are, and that is the community of providers that have really pulled together, led by the CF Foundation who provided home spirometry and multiple other opportunities and continues to support everybody. It has shown how good our social work help is and how important that is. And it also has actually shown how beneficial it was for the CF patients and families to know about infection control. I rarely see a child with CF that complains about wearing a mask. They just shrug, laugh, and say, well, I've been doing this all along. What's the big deal? So I think it does show resilience in this population. And I reflect on moving forward, what can we learn? That for me would be how do we integrate telehealth opportunities into care to make it easier on patients and still provide the same quality of care that we have provided. Dr. Marianne Mullenbach, thank you so much for being with us today. And for one more report from the front lines of CF care during this pandemic. I spoke with Dr. Robert Miller from Lehigh Valley Health Networks about managing psychosocial and economic stress. Bob and I serve on the U.S. CF Foundation's COVID Medical Advisory Group. I asked Bob to contribute to this project because of his deep humanity and empathy for his patients and their families as they are struggling to cope during the pandemic. He is so articulate about the impact of this pandemic on the emotional health and well-being of his patients and their families, as well as their economic challenges. Bob, I'd like to start off with my first question and ask you to reflect on your experience and understanding of the psychosocial and economic stresses that the COVID-19 pandemic has placed on families. First of all, what I would say is that what I'm going to reflect is really based on what I've observed and from listening to families. I obviously don't know what they're going through, but by listening to them, I can get a feel. 
I think the issues for families with cystic fibrosis and COVID is that COVID really has exacerbated some pre-COVID issues for individuals with CF. These are families that are already used to dealing with certain infection control activities, how this may affect their place at work or at school and access to care, particularly for certain populations. Now you add COVID to that and it just makes things even harder. Plus also seeing families now that are confronted with problems that they never expected to encounter, such as loss of income from job loss, which then leads to food insecurity. We're seeing families experiencing that, inability to pay rent or mortgage, families having to really think about school attendance and the isolation of support from friends and relatives because of these restrictions. So it's a double effect. And I think that Clearly, the mental health cost of this epidemic, obviously on everyone, but you know, particularly for people that are facing these issues, becomes very, very significant. And I think that it's a job as a provider to understand and acknowledge that because that's going to affect one's physical health too. There's uh, that expression, without mental health, there's no health at all. Right. Thank you for those incredible insights, and it would be really useful now if you could share the tools that you have used to help your families and patients cope. I think the first thing I would say to the healthcare providers and the members of the CF Center team is to be self-aware of the effect of this epidemic on ourselves, because we are coming to try to help families in the midst of an epidemic that is affecting our families. I think that we feel a sense of powerlessness in many ways in this situation. There's some confusion, there's uncertainty, and I think many people, my colleagues, experience anger. And I think it's important to be aware of these effects and the effect on the team because we want to come in helping families and understanding just ourselves, but then being able to help them and listen to them. So I would say that's actually the first step. I think the second thing that we've been doing is really listen. We should always be listening anyway. I start my appointment off by saying, what's going on with the COVID? What questions do you have? And often people sometimes say, we really don't have any, or they're so overwhelmed they don't even know what to ask, or they may be embarrassed to bring up some issues. So I specifically go over several points. One is I talk about access to reliable resources of information because it is so confusing. Uh, I think the CF Foundation has a great website. I stress on people to go to non-commercial websites, the American Academy of Pediatrics, their own hospital website, State Department of Health may be useful, but to understand that because as you well know, if you start listening to news outlets, et cetera, it just gets more confusing. I also am now asking specifically today of questions about the vaccine or vaccines because There's a lot, again, of misinformation about that and questions, well, how long will it take? Does everybody qualify for this, et cetera? So we go through that and what is known and clearly a huge amount that is not known yet. I then talk about specific stress questions, food, shelter, medications. I saw yesterday a family where the mom lost a job, so her child's health insurance had to be switched around. Unfortunately, she was able to do that. 
Food insecurity can be very embarrassing for people to answer, particularly for parents in front of their children. So we will often spend some time with just a parent or talking about that and and prefacing it with, you're not alone with this. What we do is I also will make sure that our social worker and our mental health provider see the family. Now, it may simply be to say hello. They may be people that they already know that they need some help. But I don't want to wait for someone to ask for that help. Another interesting thing that I've actually been asking, and this kind of gets more when I mentioned about anger, is I've been also asking people, how do you feel going out now if you're wearing your mask and you see other people are not wearing it? What is that stirring within you? And a young adult I saw the other day said, look, my right to breathe takes precedence over this person's right to say, I I don't have to wear this. And I'm not making a political statement here, but I I think the point is that this is another stress for these families. They are trying to protect themselves. And at times, depending on a community, it may be hard. Bob, I really want to thank you for all of your insights. I really, really appreciated them. And thank you again, Dr. Robert Miller. And thank you, Dr. Saman, for helping us bring this real-world perspective to our COVID-19 report. I'd like to go back now and review what we've discussed today in light of our learning objective, which is to evaluate the emerging data to make treatment decisions for patients with CF during the COVID-19 pandemic. What's most important for our learners to remember, doctor? As I contributed to this project, despite the misery of the pandemic, I felt there are many reasons for cautious optimism. In one year, we discovered the virus that causes COVID-19. We learned how it spreads and how to prevent transmission. We learned how the virus causes severe illness, which has led to countless clinical trials and evidence-based treatments, both steroids and remdesivir. Data suggests that at least two vaccines are both effective and safe, and soon will be available for distribution. Thus far, people with CF do not seem to have an increased risk of severe COVID-19. CF care networks have been able to adjust and provide quality clinical care. While strategies to prevent SARS-CoV-2 transmission must remain in place for the foreseeable future, CF community has numerous tools in our toolbox to keep people with CF, their families, and their care teams healthy and safe. Dr. Lisa Saman from Columbia University Medical Center and New York Presbyterian Hospital, thank you for sharing your knowledge and expertise in this eCystic Fibrosis Review Special Edition. You're very welcome, Bob. This was a very worthwhile project. For E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ecfreview.org and click on the COVID-19 Special Edition link. This E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Special Edition is supported by educational grants from USA Incorporated and Vertex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKB Med, LLC. Thank you for listening.